One of the things that I do worry a lot about is this growing divide between the haves and have-nots, and technology right. certainly widens the divide. And what I am very focused on is the opportunity for technology to eliminate the divide. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, things like uh, free and abundant energy solve the world's water problem. You know, and, and the leading cause of death in the world even today is waterborne disease. I mean, far too many people in the world spend all of their time uh, hauling water, bad water from a river just to stay alive. Well, I mean, without water, you've got nothing, right? Right. They have zero opportunity to take advantage of this coming uh, connectivity to the internet and joining this kind of human network where they can take advantage of all of this, this knowledge and connection with people around the world to raise funds, do microfunding, to start a business, and join the 21st century. Welcome to The Climb. I'm your host, Michael Moore, and today we're excited to join Michael Knight into the podcast world. Michael, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for the invitation. Michael Knight is president of the Exponential Technology Group and senior vice president of corporate business development at TTI, Inc., a multi-billion dollar global distributor of electrical components and services. And as of a few years ago, and we'll get into it, a subsidiary of Berkshire Hathaway. So again, welcome. This is awesome. I'm really glad to be doing this in person with you, actually. No, I know. It feels good. I'm glad we're able to do it in person. So before we jump into all of your various roles and perceptions that you've gained because of those roles, I like to really dial it back and start at the beginning, because as we talk about a lot uh, with the climb crossroads and defining moments, I think that the ingredients that make you are who you are now started a long time ago. So if we could start back at the beginning, childhood, where you grew up, and some of the things along the way that began to influence you and eventually bring you into the role you're in now. Yeah, that's a, I appreciate the opportunity to start there because I actually have a pretty well-defined operating manual for myself that has been assembled from the experiences that I've had from being you know, very young. Um, and it's a, it's a work in process, but it's pretty important to me. It's kind of, you know, the rules I live by, if you will. But as a starting point, I think probably the most important thing to get out of the way is I'm a native Texan. Amen. Yeah. I was born in uh, Austin at St. David's Hospital right there off of 35. Yep. Uh, and I have it on pretty good authority that I was actually conceived in the Driscoll Hotel. <laughs> yeah. Love that place. Oh, I, I, I do too. I've been in uh, lots of meetings over the years, stayed in a lot of different rooms, and I've always wondered, you know, is this the room? <laughs> you know, <laughs> is this where it all started? So my parents are Texans. Actually, family goes back pre-Alamo. Okay. Father's family was in West Texas, you know, Buffalo Gap, Abilene, Moran. God, some of those places are ghost towns now. Um, and mother's family originally came from Tennessee to Austin. Okay. So as a, as a kid, I was in Austin quite a bit when uh, it certainly looked a lot different than it does today. But so I've got uh, Texas roots and both my parents graduated from UT. And then shortly thereafter, we left town and went to Philadelphia area. My father was an engineer working for GE. Actually, and this is an, an interesting part of my growing up experience in that he was, uh, he designed breeder reactors for General Electric. So, um, and this is, it's, 
I won't go down this rabbit hole right now, but I'm a big fan of nuclear energy uh, as a result of that. I think I, I might have been the first person in the country to get the nuclear energy merit badge when it the boy when it, the Boy Scouts introduced it. Wow! So I, and uh, so anyway, so I grew up in the Philadelphia area. Probably another thing to share that's kind of formative for me is, like a lot of people, pretty dysfunctional family. Mm-hmm. Parents blew apart when I was nine. Um, and I was oldest of uh, three boys, so that was. Uh, Neither one of these guys, quite frankly, should have had parents or rather had kids. Um, Obviously, I'm kind of glad that they did. But, you know, they were wrestling with their own demons. So uh, from very early on, it's not like we were ever food insecure. There's never a shortage of food, but there was a bit of a shortage of, you know, attention, Mm -hmm. affection, those kinds of things, which actually... You know, have a lot to do with kind of teaching you some independence and that kind of stuff. So we were uh, banging around in, in uh, Pennsylvania. Mother got remarried to a real a-hole, mm-hmm. quite frankly. Probably the, it was a reason telling you all this because it's a big piece of my operating manual kind of was crafted out of what I learned during those times when I was... Oh, 16, I reached a size where I didn't physically have to take a lot of nonsense <laughs> from <laughs> my stepfather. And so uh, we had a discussion about uh, some new rules of the road and his, the way he solved that, th- 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 throw me out and change the locks. Wow. So I mm. spent- uh, How old were you at that time? Uh, six, 16, okay. yeah. so still in high school. But the important takeaway there is I had a lot of great friends and friends' parents that, for reasons unknown to me, had a lot of fondness for me. So I did a lot of couch surfing mm-hmm. and kind of just kind of moved on. And a uh, girlfriend from high school that I followed to college, which, by the way, not the best way to pick a college. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but, but there are worse things that you can take. Right? Yeah, well, it's uh, in, in, in the uh, there was how this one unfolded is probably is how they mostly unfold, which is you know in your uh, first year of college, she comes to her senses, realizes that there's uh, more to be had than what you offer, mm-hmm. and bye bye, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> but the interesting thing I think about all of that is. So her sister, her family was, I had kind of adopted as my family. So, and and this is kind of the moral of the story, you know, kind of pick great people to hang out with, great people ultimately to work with, you know, kind of build your own family. And, and it, it really has crap that's crafted. I think I've become over time, but her sister and brother-in-law are people that I talk to all the time. Still, she, you know, they're, she's like my sister and he's like my brother. Mm-hmm. Uh, our parents are like my parents, although we lost uh, Jack uh, earlier this year. So it was, you know, these are lifelong, and I've got lifelong friends in Pennsylvania. So that's uh, uh, incredibly valuable and, and helped. Let me ask this question right on some of the things that you've laid out there. Because similarly, my parents got divorced. Uh, I was a little older. I was a sophomore. But back to your, you know, your operating manual, that certainly define some things in my life, just seeing that whole process. Do you have kids now? I don't. Okay. 
Yeah, which is uh, by design. I am my wife and I, we've been together 28 years. And she uh, also didn't have a very, you know, productive growing up family experience. And so early on, we, and we were both hyper career oriented. Mm -hmm. So very early in our, you know, when, when we had that conversation about, you know, hey, this is, you know, getting pretty serious. And she gave me the signal that, hey, it, uh, I'm not fooling around anymore. If you want to keep spending time with me. Right. And I, I think I was getting ready to turn 30. And so we had this conversation about kids and I said, man, I, I'm ready, but we need to talk about kids. And she said, yeah, get it. So, which is great because I've also, I have lots of friends who, you know, one of them wants kids, one of them doesn't. And mm -hmm. that's, that's pretty difficult too. So yeah, no kids. Well, I should, I take it back. Packs of dogs. We're right. big dog people. There so you go. I've scratched that itch, so to speak with, with dogs. Yeah. Yeah. So then if it wasn't a, a kid focus, um, and I think that that's fascinating, you know, at that early age could make that decision as a couple, it shows the strength of what would ultimately become a, and still is a very long relationship. What about seeing your parents get divorced has influenced the way that you work with your spouse through life and its challenges? Man, that's a, a great question. So my parents were completely unable to maintain perspective mm -hmm. on anything. They weren't the adults in charge. You know, they forgot that they had this responsibility. And it's really made me hyper aware of my impact on the people around me, the responsibility I have, and made me very my decision-making process, I, I don't jump to conclusions. I really try hard to have a long-term perspective. I mean, I completely outkicked my coverage with my <laughs> wife, although I'm constantly re reminding her that uh, I, I tell her she outkicked her coverage, just trying to For sure. maintain some level <laughs> of leverage right. in the relationship. But, um, you know, it's, it's not, and she's got a fair dose of Italian in her genetics, a little bit of Irish. And especially uh, when we were younger, very uh, fiery. So we, we would have some pretty good mm -hmm. uh, disagreements. And I would always, you know, we, we don't have, one of the things about not having kids is in a weird way, it actually makes it, I think, easier to give up because you don't have that right. component to deal with. And, but it, it never, well, I said, say never, there were times where I thought, oh my God, this is, uh, you know, life's short and I don't really want to spend the rest of it sleeping on the couch, you know? Right. But, you know, step back from it and you think about all the great things, you think about where you're going, you think about how trivial or petty, whatever the disagreement is, and you, know, you take a breath, you, you know, you suck it up and realize that, hey, 24 hours from now, we're going to be back in great space and this is you know let's not blow this out of proportion yep. and um that's not something i ever witnessed my parents do mm. so it's, it's been a very deliberate part of my you know operating manual yeah we have uh we're not we don't bat a thousand at it but you know try if there if that argument especially if it's been building right because we're both guilty of it where it's just like, you're so busy with your day. And so, you know, you need to go tackle this issue at home, but you don't, you just kind of let it continue to build, which is the worst thing you can do. 
But when it does finally blow the top, within 24 hours, it's like we've got to we put everything on hold. This is the most important thing. This is the, the glue of everything else. We got to get this fixed. And when we commit to that, which again, we're not perfect, it's just, it makes everything so much easier because you see both people blown up out here and then the desire to come back together and, and make it work. So I, I really respect that. So back to, to college, it's, it's Widener University, is that yeah, right? Widener University and old Pennsylvania Military College. And, uh, which I, oddly enough, my father once upon a time had taught at. Wow. Yeah. So it, uh, he, one of the one of the things I, I'm very fortunate with, both of my parents were well-educated. He's got a couple of PhDs. So I always had that kind of push. They created mm-hmm. an environment where, you know, we learned to read early, and which is another, I think, extremely important thing, you know, lifelong learning and self-edification through reading, now through podcasts and things. Um, but so I got out of, I went to school for biology, very interested in genetics, very interested actually in marine biology until I figured out that marine biologists, 100% of them die poor. Um, <laughs> and so I got out of uh, college and decided that, well, even in college, that it was time to get out of Pennsylvania. I, I need to do something different. That The downside to being on my own was that I had gotten a little wild mm-hmm. And it was, you know, it was time to, I needed to, I needed an air gap on that. So uh, the best place to go is California <laughs> because that's where, you know, early biotech was forming and this was in the mid eighties. So I had a 1970 Honda 450 CL or CL 450 that I had, um, so actually the first thing I did when I got thrown out of the house buy a motorcycle. Yeah, that'll show yeah. them. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I, if, if I had kids of my own, maybe the only hard and fast rule I would have is nobody gets a motorcycle, right. especially young guys in motorcycles. It's uh, a b- bad combination. It should be outlawed. So uh, I had <laughs> actually retrofit this thing to, if you remember the motorcycle that Fonzie rode oh, in yeah. Happy Days? Yeah. So I chopped it and, uh, cut the pipes back. So, you know, in essence took the mufflers off and you could hear this thing from the other side of town. And I hopped on that, uh, with what money I had and a bag of food that my friends had uh, given me and, and went to California and, uh, somewhere about the Mississippi, uh, you know, sleeping along, I'd pull off in the woods and something in the middle of the night ran off with my bag of food. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> So I had a I had a choice to make to uh, uh, with what money I had to you know, gas or food. So uh, I spent it on food and I siphoned gas all the way to California. Oh my gosh! So How long did it take you to get there? Uh, about six days. Yeah, because this motorcycle was actually not equipped for you know driving down Interstate Forty. Yeah. Um, so I was doing a lot of back roads and stuff, and uh, so got got to land it in Cupertino, California, which as it turns out, is, you know, the birthplace of Silicon Valley, really, or, you know, Mountain View. And, mm-hmm. and um, so that's where that second half of my life, you know, the piece of the adventure that I'm in the middle of right now started is in uh, in Cupertino. So I got into uh, 
actually waiting tables and doing working on a fishing boat and trying to figure out, you know, trying to calm down a little bit, get focused, but it may be one or the other. It kind of leads to another thing out of the manual for me is work hard, never miss a day at work, mm -hmm. show up. Doesn't matter what you were doing the night before, show up because, you know, jobs, income, very important to me my whole life. You know, it's a source of security, mm -hmm. I guess. Um, so it was uh, in the restaurant business, dating a girl whose mom was the banker for a company called Western Microtechnology, which was founded by two guys out of Fairchild, out of that original core group of Fairchild. And for those who don't know the history of uh, electronics, uh, a guy named Bill Shockley came out of Bell Labs in New Jersey with an early transistor and started Fairchild in California. And he, he hired Gordon Moore and Charlie Sprock, Bob Noyce, and, you know, a lot of the early pioneer, they're legends mm -hmm. now. And uh, the two guys that started Western Microtechnology. So I was living, I didn't even realize at the time, and learning from kind of industry royalty. And, and we'd see, I mean, you'd see everybody. You'd see uh, Gord Moore, uh, Andy Grove. And I, I had a commute where Steve Jobs would blow by me in his black BMW, whatever, at about a million miles an hour. Yeah. So it, uh, it was a really fun, I'm super lucky, phenomenal place to start my career. And it's just kind of, it's rolled on from there. And so as we were preparing for this podcast and, and talking to John Archer, you know, he referred to you as, as a Renaissance man. Uh, so with that's a the, big word for John Archer. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is. Um, so with, with that kind of foundation and that kind of tagline uh, associated to your name, I mean, where, where did you take it from there and, and then kind of walk us through to now your current position at, at TTI? Yeah. So I'm working in, uh, actually in the IT department and I very, quickly made a strong connection with a CFO and these two guys who started it as well as some of the, there's a guy named uh, Mike Rolletter who factors into the story at that time, another guy named Ray Wu, which I'll circle back to because they're, they're still names in, uh, in my life at the right now that, so it's this whole notion of attaching yourself to really good people and then listening to what they tell you, following their example. And that really helped me. It, it, it moved me up into management. Actually, I'm, I mean, I was just a complete jerk off. And um, <laughs> these folks saw something in me and like, gave me a shot at things. And the software company we worked with, those folks saw something in me. And it, at some point they said, you know, hey, why don't you come work for us? And uh, which was super cool. They were in Southern California and I was flying back and forth from San Jose to Southern California every day. So that was my commute back wow. when you could do that. Yeah. Making more money than I thought I'd ever make. I think I had a $900 car allowance. This is back when you could you could have, give somebody a big fat car allowance <laughs> instead of, you know, salary or, you know, as part of salary, you get right. away with stuff like that. Sure. I, I didn't even drive a car, I, but my commute was in a plane. And then that introduced me to a bunch of people and one was a couple of entrepreneurs in uh, Sunnyvale who liked me and uh, a guy who's uh, since left us named Lee Merrill who 
kind of took me under his wing and he's and he said, you know, Knight, you're a smart guy. You've got some ambition, but uh, you need to learn how to sell. Mm-hmm. He said, you've got to, everything in this life is selling. You know, uh, you're going to be selling your family. You're going to, whatever you're doing in business, you're, you know, whether your title is sales or not. It, and he said, I, I, I think you could be a great salesperson. And so these guys hired me. And, and Lee was, uh, this is a funny story about Lee. Um, first thing he did was take me to Peter Pan B&W to meet his buddy who was a sales manager at Peter Pan. And I was like, Lee, um, what, are we, what are we doing here? He goes, are we going to pick out a yeah, you, guy like you? You need to be driving a brand new BMW. And uh, so pick it out. I'm like, Lee, I can't swing this. And I'm, I'm driving a, a Peugeot. If you've sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a Peugeot uh, 505 Turbo that I called a poor man's BMW. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> so I said, this isn't, this isn't going to work. I, I can't afford this. And he goes, don't worry about it. I'll co-sign. And they'll give you the loan, pick out your car. And I had a feeling that there was uh, some, something going on here. Mm-hmm. And so I passed. I, I got back later and his partner, a guy named Ed Merrill, said, uh, Ed said, or not Ed Merrill, um, it was Lee Merrill. What was Ed's last name? Oh, I'm embarrassed. I've forgotten it. And he said, uh, you don't have a BMW. You're still driving that piece of shit Peugeot. <laughs> <laughs> I said, yeah. I, this something didn't feel right, and Ed gave me a high five, and he said, "Good move." What Lee does is he traps you under a mountain of debt, mm-hmm. and he keeps you so damn hungry that I mean, you, you basically shoot somebody for an order. Yeah, and uh, but it, 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 another life lesson, right? Right. Yeah, super clever. So anyway, I'm in Silicon Valley, and I uh, get to know a ton of people, learning a lot about tech, doing some side work computer programming from my Western micro days. And I, I hook up with a guy who becomes uh, very instrumental in my life in terms of being a mentor and a guy named Jeff Davis, who was the CFO for a company that I was doing some side work for. And he and some other really interesting people bought this business. And he said, hey, listen, you got to come work here. And he was the guy that really set me on a really interesting journey is this the, that company. Well, first of all, I got it started to get international experience, so he had he, he put a lot more trust in me than uh, was probably wise of him to do. And um, but another thing I, I kind of grown up with is, hey, when when somebody bets on you, do not let them down. Right. So that kind of rolled. His company got acquired, which was really interesting to be part of that process. And he moved on in the acquired company to do some other things. And he set it up for me to become the general manager of that business. And I was early 30s at that time, which was uh, like getting a, an MBA mm-hmm. because you know, people who are my peers are now my subordinates. And you know a lot of them are quite older than I am. And so there's a lot. I mean, I've got stories from those days that uh, there's some wild stuff um, involved. Some of these stories involve knife fights and guns. And <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> yeah. Um, so, but it, it, through that process, then the guys who are putting this together, and this is going to bring me back into Texas, they acquired the company. There's some guys here in Texas 
uh, LBO firm by the name of Hicks Muse Tate First. Yep. We're doing a roll up in the industry and they acquired this uh, little company I was working for. And one of their guys, another guy who fought, uh, factors very heavily uh, in my life, a guy named Tim Conlon, who was a uh, president and chief operating officer and very tied in with the operating company that Hicks Muse used for in this particular roll up took a strong interest in me and so started inviting me to things meetings and other experiences that i probably had no business being in and so this whole thing is so now i'm in charge and i've got some ideas about how to uh, diversify mm -hmm. and i pitched a plan to go into what's love called level one interconnect which is a it's a semiconductor thing it's where the die gets attached to a package explain how i thought that was going to uh, have kind of a, an outsized indirect benefit to the entire group of companies that had uh, come together, got uh, funded for it, and was uh, off building that. And the guys that, uh, some of the guys at Hicks Muse had been, they were angel investors in something, or actually, I don't think they were angel investors at that point. They had a partner in the real estate side of their business, a guy named uh, David Deniger super guy who son and a friend of his from i don't know where they went a, a prep school greenville academy or mm -hmm. something right had started this business called substrate technologies and they were looking for an investor so i went down there and uh, met these guys and here's and there's two more names to add to the list clay deniger um, david's son who's one of the smartest guys best operators i know he runs a thing called uh, capstone capital that he put together in dallas another guy named abram castro who is just a flipping genius <laughs> uh, abram's not with us anymore but uh we built this uh, so i put some money in was on the board of directors really fascinated with what they're doing and in the meantime the company i was working for the hicks muse guys ha had taken it public and then we got sold, we got acquired by a French conglomerate that first thing they wanted to do was flush everything that looked weird and all of the stuff that I was dragging the company into looked weird to them. So I left and uh, came to Texas to work uh, at, Sub I was the, become the president and chief operating officer to help Substrate Technologies go from kind of a lab experiment with a bunch of patents and set up high volume manufacturing. And we went and got qualified at Intel and all kinds of, it, it built a factory in South China or spent a ton of time and really cool experience with some people that I just adored. I mean, they really, um, it, I never worked so hard in my life, but never had so much fun mm -hmm. either. And then that company actually, I don't know, it was, we were working on, this is late nineties. If you remember the industry was really starting to uh, choke up. Mm -hmm. We had an inventory hang and we that we were going into the, the dot-com bubble, right? Burst and, and, and we were out raising, I think it was round C. We had, I don't know, a year worth of runway. We had some angel money from some of the Hicks Muse guys, which was helpful. And uh, had put together, just prior to that, we were, everybody was going public, didn't matter, you know, pre-revenue, didn't matter. And so we had put together a deal that ultimately landed with Merrill Lynch. We were going to go public and looked around and said, you know, this might not be the best time. 
So uh, Merrill Lynch agreed, did a bridge for us, and then started we started on the path of a D round. And in the process of that, found a strategic acquirer for the company and uh, sold it. So you know, I, I, I'm in Texas. My wife's in Texas. She's got this massive career. She was at the time, I think she was uh, VP of marketing for KPMG or Anderson Consulting or wow. somebody she's doing a lot of cool stuff, uh, traveling all over the world. And I guess maybe it was, you know, she was going to work for KPMG and they said, you know, where, pick where you want to work. So and I had sold and said, why don't we go back to California? You know, I know a ton of people in California. You've always wanted to live in a city. Let's try San Francisco. So that's what we did. And that was uh, early 2000s. So we landed in San Francisco. Sorry for the long story. No, 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 this Just is like, good. Yeah, tug your earlobe or something if you need me to <laughs> shut up. <laughs> Keep going. So we're in San Francisco and I'm looking for like my next thing, you know, um, something that's going to fire me up. And I get hooked up with a VC there and I'm and kind of like a, I guess an entrepreneur in residence of, and they're firing me off to look at, you know, uh, new nanotech stuff and a really cool stuff. The vast majority of which was never going to see the light of day, which is kind of relates to another thing that I think a lot about and which is, uh, timing is everything. Mm-hmm. You know, the, <clears throat> the world's history is full of amazing ideas that just too soon if they could, you know, you, so, um, I was looking at all that stuff that was way too soon and we had a house here. I was flying back and forth to take look after the house. And this is where TTI comes in. TTI back in the nineties, I had hired TTI when I was at that company that Jeff Davis was running. It was a company called McKenzie technology. And I was building out a distribution network and I'd been watching what was going on with this, this little company in Texas. And they had, they were running an advertising campaign at the time called the best little warehouse in Texas. It was awesome. It was so different and so, you know, irreverent. It wasn't like anything else going on that I was seeing in the industry. And, um, so I spent two years selling TTI to take my line on. And so real quick for the, for our listeners that may not understand where you got that tagline, tell us the, uh, the, the true source of that tagline. Well, so you have to, to get to the original tagline, you'd have to substitute the word warehouse with whorehouse. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I, it, I was, I think it was a Broadway thing, a right. little shop of horrors or something. Yeah. yeah. And I uh, think they made a movie too, didn't they? I think they, they did. Yeah. yeah, I think they did. Go back and research that. Yeah. Dolly Parton may have been in it or something. I don't know. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I, now that you say that, I think you might be right. So TTI is a distributor for me. I'm back here. I stayed in touch with those guys and I don't know what TTI at the time when I hired them was 200 million or something. Get to know a guy named Mike Morton, who also factors very heavily in, in, you know, in in my life and that he's for the last 17 years, he's actually been my boss. So yeah, there's the punchline on that one. (laughs) And, you know, Paul Andrews, who's the founder of the company and a guy named Craig Conrad, who's also uh, factored heavily in, in my life was a great mentor. So some things were going on. Company was getting bigger. Paul had put in a new uh, management advisory committee who was saying, hey, you know, you've got to bring some talent in and and stuff. And I was having lunch with Mike and Craig and they said, hey, things are changing at at TTI. Have you ever thought about coming back to Texas? 
So uh, I talked to my wife and she's like, yeah, I love Texas. I can do my job anywhere. Let's go back. So uh, that brought me back to Texas in 2004. Four, yeah. yeah. And so, and that's, you know, that brings, brings me current. I've been, oh, well, as you said, we're now 7 billion. Mm -hmm. So the company has changed uh, quite a bit. And um, actually my role in the company has changed quite a bit. They uh, have done something so fine, really novel and unique in that they bet on me and uh, we formed a new branch of the company. In fact, I'm in the process right now of standing it up with its own you know, tax ID and everything. Um, it's and we're, we've built it largely through acquisition and uh, this year we should do 450 million in revenue. Wow. And uh, we have a very clear line of sight the next couple of years to take this piece of the company to a billion. We, you know, we're diversifying the, the portfolio of businesses that we've got. And I, I, I should, I think you've mentioned it, Michael, we're 2000, 2006 or 2007, we're acquired. Mm -hmm. uh, Paul sold the company to Berkshire Hathaway, which is, um, was also, it, it's, I've never seen anything like this yeah. place. I mean, it's really remarkable. And uh, we've been very fortunate for that decision that Paul made. So yeah, you know, here we are. So, so picking up on a theme that's been repeated or that I've heard in, in this impressive career thus far is people seem to see something in you and go, I want to bet on that guy. And so you, you mentioned uh, Steve Jobs zooming by you in his BMW. I, I'm under pretty good authority that Mr. Andrews like fast cars too. So <laughs> what do you think he, he saw in you and, and, and bringing you over and developing what you've developed? I don't know. You know, it's, uh, I, I don't know. A lot of this was Paul trusting Mike Morton and mm -hmm. Craig Conrad in, in their view and having enough of a feel for me himself to go with their call on it. But you know, I, I, I guess what they saw in me was somebody who had could bring a lot of different experiences to the table, a lot of different perspectives. I've worked for component manufacturers, I've worked for distributors, and so and they and somebody maybe who kind of spiced things up a little bit. It, Paul, who I, and I think you're aware, we lost in February at, on the literally the eve of the company's 50th anniversary, yeah. and, and, and maybe I should. I think it's worth uh, taking a moment to say something about uh, Paul Andrews. He Please started do. this company in 1970 after getting laid off from General Dynamics and literally in his kitchen buying and reselling resistors, which are the smallest in many ways, most insignificant electronic component in the entire ecosystem. Mm -hmm. When you look at a printed circuit board, the vast majority of those teeny little things that look like almost a, a, a speck of salt are resistors. And they, they literally sell for, you know, a thousand of them, 10,000 of them would be a couple of bucks. Right. So he was the uh, uh, king of resistors and he started this business from nothing, worked his tail off, reinvested in the business, never took on debt and stayed below the radar his whole thing was you know it's the good the great thing you know, his, it, he wasn't he wanted to be the best and you know the, the good is the great enemy of great or maybe i've got that backwards and he just put his head down 
and m- made it happen. Mm-hmm. So really remarkable guy and literally on the eve of the 50th anniversary of this thing he's accomplished, um, we lost him uh, unexpectedly. I mean, it was just, it's still kind of hard to get your head around. Mm-hmm. He was, the day bef- before we lost him, you know, he was on his, he came to the office every day, I think 78 at the time. He had poked his head in my office and we were talking about cars and trucks and something something we had in common, old cars, old trucks, and an old motorcycle guy mm-hmm. and an old farm tractor guy. And so we talked mechanical things. Yeah. And then you don't see him anymore, right? So, mm-hmm. and the TTI has got a phenomenal culture. And it all started with that man. And this guy, Mike Morton, I've talked about a bunch, uh, who's uh, become, he's now, he's stepped in as the new CEO. He's mm-hmm. grown up there. I mean, he's a perfect caretaker for the culture. You know, he's in, he's in a lot of ways, Paul's, you know, we have a business family. Mike was Paul's business son. Yeah. 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 So pretty incredible guy. We've, we've had the pleasure of getting to know him as well. And I I couldn't agree more. Um, He's just, he's got that ability when he's talking to you that you feel like you're the only person he's, he's talking to and you're, it's an important conversation. I reached out to him. And actually, John Archer, uh, in, in advance of the uh, of this podcast, and asked them for some words to describe you. And actually, I asked for three. None of them were four letter words, so we don't have to worry about that. But uh, both of them chose visionary as one of their three words. And so, in listening to the presentation you were making in in Vegas, uh, and you talked a lot about the roaring 2020s and kind of where this economy is headed. And I wrote down a bunch of stats we can get into that I found fascinating. But as a visionary that you're described by, by two of your, your coworkers, I mean, where is all of this headed? You know, you, you think just when you think you have it figured out and COVID's going to take the economy this way, it's the exact opposite of what we thought. Everything's going to shut down and businesses are going to suffer. They're doing better. We've all figured out how to work from home or a job. I mean, so where is this headed? Yeah. Where is this headed? This is, so name of the, we just got through rebranding this group that of companies that I run and uh, their new name is the Exponential Technology Group. Mm-hmm. And by the way, picking a company name these days, man, is it tough. <laughs> yeah. All the good stuff's been taken. You know, because you've got to get a URL and hashtags mm-hmm. and all that. You and put together the package is pretty tough. But I, I kind of went into it with this notion of calling it the exponential technology group because of the stuff that we do. It's, you know, super leading edge and all that. And also because I have this very strong belief that uh, technology is progressing in an exponential fashion. So uh, in, in an exponential curve, the interesting thing about it is the first half of the curve feels very linear. It feels like a very steady progression kind of up and to the right. It's the second half of the curve where, you know, you kind of break free of gravity and things uh, start to skyrocket. And for really the last 10 years or so, as I've been watching all the new technology our customers are bringing to the market, what the suppliers are doing and the general trends and that kind of thing, and, and spending a lot of time thinking about, you know, where we were in, to where we are today and, mm-hmm. you know, the speed of that particular journey and, and what that implies. 
I become uh, very convinced that I'm I'm not alone in this. And there's really some very smart people who write about this and talk about this. That technology was in the 2020s was going to move and go exponential, and that's in fact uh, what we're seeing. It's everywhere. And when you think about the amount of technology in your life today versus five years ago, or one of the examples I, that I, I use to kind of explain this to help people level set because it's this whole idea of answering your question, predicting where the future's going. As a species, we're absolutely crappy at that. It's because you know, when you think about it, it's pretty easy to go from, you know, here to here, take that one step, but then you get decisions and it start to branch out and then each of those starts to branch out. And before you know it, it's almost infinite amount of possibilities to, to navigate. But at the same time, it's also pretty easy to look back and see the particular pathway that got followed from the past to mm-hmm. now. So if you, if you think back to like your first, I mean, your first phone call was on something attached to the wall with a curly right. cord. And then, I don't know, sometime in the mid eighties, maybe you got your first car phone, which and I remember my first car phone. That was, that made me the absolutely coolest person <laughs> on the planet. Right? Big and heavy. Uh, yeah. Well, and, and it was actually a, it was actually a phone in right. the car. It's like a know? briefcase. It, crazy expensive. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I pull up at a stoplight and I pretend I was on a phone <laughs> call because it was such a novel thing. Sure. And I just, yeah, in my Peugeot, I'd be sitting there with my, my, my phone. So, you, and it's, and I remember my first personal information management thing, you know, my first Palm pilot and you, know, you might have had a uh, beeper. I mean, I certainly had a beeper and a pager and, and so you can see how all that progresses up to today's iPhone or you know, whatever your smartphone choice is. Right. And it's pretty easy to see that. And it's like, oh, that's pretty logical, but you know, 25 years ago, n- nobody would have guessed right. that you couldn't have predicted that. And look at all the technology that went into that and how transformative that technology is. Maybe you hear this all the time. In an iPhone, you have something that's more and more powerful than all of the computing power going into the 80s. So right. it's gotten smaller, it's gotten denser, it runs on a battery, it gives you full access to an unbelievable amount of knowledge, you know, through the internet. You know, the amount of data on the internet, it's uh, doubled in the last two years. I and mean, in the last two years, we've accumulated more information than in the entire rest of the history of mankind. Mm-hmm. So this stuff is just cycling faster and faster and faster. And one development or breakthrough or innovation leads to a whole bunch of others. And what I'm seeing happening right now is a lot of things coming together at once that are very broad. So it, as if, for instance, this thing called IoT, the Internet of Things, mm-hmm. which is and it's, it's really a, a general purpose technology or an ecosystem application that simply put, it's this trend to connect everything to the internet so that everything becomes a data collection point and that data gets sent up into the internet where it can, analytics can be applied to it and eventually AI is applied to it. And the benefits of that are, are tremendous. I mean, right now we're seeing stuff uh, connected to the internet that I was visiting a company in Michigan yesterday they make smart pallets. You know the pallets that you ship stuff on? They've, uh, they insert a sensor that's keeping track of 
motion, G-forces, temperature, humidity, wow. and they can follow a pallet of fruit as it moves around the country to uh, its final destination. They can tell if it's seen more than 10 Gs of force, which means it's probably corrupted or bruised mm -hmm. and it's temperature. They can tell the origin of it, you know, when it was picked, when it gets into these massive warehouses, they, uh, the system seamlessly hands off to this mesh network and the warehouse. I mean, it's smart toothbrushes. I mean, it's just, it's everywhere. And these are early days. Mm -hmm. These are absolutely early days. Now, while this is all important, it kind of comes full circle uh, back to your question in terms of where we're going. It's massively transformative in terms of, it, it, here's something to think about. So technology is roughly 250 years old, say so beginning of the industrial revolution. So from 18, early 1800s, uh, until today, and this is something I talked about in that Las Vegas thing that mm -hmm. you referenced. The, in the early 1800s, more than half the people in the world lived below the poverty level. And now it's uh, below 10%. I mean, we're making huge progress in bringing the standard and quality of living for every person on the earth up. And today, half the people on the earth don't have internet access. A billion and a half people don't have access to any kind of technology at all, including electricity. Right. So we are very quickly, we've got the technology today to connect in the next couple of years, everybody to the internet to create free and abundant energy. And this takes me back to the, my nuclear comment earlier mm -hmm. on, which is literally transforms life as a species. And this is what I find uh, very hopeful, solves a lot of the can help us solve a lot of the existential crises that we have in front of us in terms of climate related stuff and, mm -hmm. and all kinds of things. So it, it, and I, I talked about this in the, the Las Vegas thing that you referenced as well. And this is another topic that fascinates me, which is the yin and yang of technology. Right. And, you know, yin and yang is uh, order and chaos, right? And technology, amazing thing about it is it, a lot of our big problems today were actually created by technology. You know, there's something like 800 million tons of plastic that works its way into the oceans every year. Wow. And plastic is something that was invented coming out of World War II. So in no, no time at all, and it gets into the ocean and it breaks down into little microparticles that work, its, work themselves into our food chain. Th this stuff has a half-life of like 10,000 years. We're ingesting it really bad. So, you know, this is, it was a very important technology and it brought the cost down on a lot of things and it made us, we were able to make, you know, very intricate things out of it that were very affordable, but huge problem. It's, you know, it's in, in a way it's choking the planet right now. Mm -hmm. A lot of technology is uh, being commercialized to make alternatives that are biodegradable, that break down all the functionality and all the benefit without all of the downside. So the yin, yin and yang, and we've, yeah. Technology is, is full of this kind of stuff where it's created a problem. And fortunately, we now have that technology has gotten to a point where it can start to solve these problems. Carbon capture mm -hmm. to start helping with, uh, you know, the holes we're punching in the, in the ozone, et cetera, et cetera. And so you're, I, you don't know if you're what your flavor of science fiction might be, whether it's <laughs> Star Trek or, or whatever, but you know, that kind of nirvana where people don't have to worry about the kinds of things that through the history of our species we've worried about 
Where are we going to get our next meal? Are we secure? This person that's coming up that I, I don't know that looks different than me. I, you know, I'm, I, I'm hardwired to be biased towards, you know, all this stuff that we're grappling with is we, we're going to evolve. We are evolving in some pretty interesting ways and very quickly because it's exponential. Mm -hmm. So this is the decade where I think it becomes obvious that it's just different, not, not different, like your grandparents trying to figure out how to log onto the internet, kind of different, like different, like flying cars, different, right? Right. You right. Know, and, and Uber is working on a flying car service and Dallas is one of the first places that they've targeted to, you know, where you'd be able to go from Dallas to Fort Worth and wherever on a flight. I mean, that kind of thing, it's in the world today. The technology's here today. Money's pouring into it. What's the thing that I, another thing I tell people a lot of times is you got to stay healthy mm -hmm. because a lot of this stuff that historically it takes us down is getting solved, right? So one, one of my other, and this takes me back to my biology thing, you know, we, from in 1800, we lived to about 40 years old. Right. On average, we're living to 80 years old now. And, you know, people who have kids today, I bet them, I bet money, their kids are going to live over 100. Mm -hmm. And each of us have the ability to accomplish that too. If we can stay well enough for some of the technology that's, that's here now to get approved in terms of, you know, gene editing. And, and I'll give you an example. There's a, a, the blowhead whale, there's a whale a blowhead, poor thing probably gets a lot of ribbing with a name like that. <laughs> um, it has a genetic mutation that uh, basically makes it cancer free. It's a genetic mutation that prevents it from having that kind of cellular degeneration and the immune system degeneration that allows something like cancer to take hold. Just the fact that we know that is pretty impressive no kidding. too, right? Right. No yeah. kidding. Yep. There's another, there's a whole story right there. And it's got another interesting thing going on with genetic, it, with it genetically. It's got two genes that work on slowing cellular growth and aid in cellular repair. So punchline is blowhead whales live to 200. Wow. It's a mammal that lives to 200. You know, and there are invertebrates that live to 400. And so this, this whole notion that if you're lucky, you're going to live to 90, maybe 100. A few people occasionally punch above 100. We are, in the last couple of years, understand more about how our system works, our, our immune system and all the different systems within the body, the different organs, and how it responds to all the pollutants in the environment. And I mean, it just, it's, it's unbelievable. And we're turning that knowledge into stuff that's actionable. And we're going to... I firmly believe that in my lifetime, people aren't going to die of cancer anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, how radical of a thought right. is that? And then how transformative is that? And then what happens if everybody starts living a long time? You know, right now we have a situation where like in the U.S., the, the population is kind of reaching parity between births and deaths in places like Japan. It's, you know, people are dying faster than they're being born and that has its own set of problems. But when people start living a long time, what does that mean? Is the world all of a sudden get even have more people? You know, we go from seven and a half billion to 10 billion overnight. And then how do we feed them? And then what's the impact of the you know, factory farming on greenhouse gases? And if you're going to live to 
let's say you live to 120, you know, when do you quit working? Right. Do you just, do you get married at 25 or 30 and you're with the same person for a hundred years? And the correct answer is yes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the only answer. <laughs> the only Because <laughs> I do have to go home after this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Really long answer because it's, as I try to think about what the world looks like five years from now, I right. mean, that's nothing. I mean, we're going to wake up tomorrow and it's going to be five years later. I mean, if things are just happening fast, I can't. Five years from now, they're going to, I bet there's flying cars. Right. Five years from now, I bet half of us at least are driving an EV. I mean, there's some, some easy things, mm -hmm. but the transformational things in terms about how we live together and how we interact and racial tension and, and all of this, it's a big caveat though. I mean, it, the possibilities are mind blowing. Right. The big caveat is that our institutions aren't keeping up. You know, the major institutions in our lives that, that have a lot to do with how we all live and work together and how all of this works mm -hmm. predate technology, government, right. religion, education. Now, education, in large part, in a weird way, thanks to COVID, is uh, starting to modernize some. But basically, these are things that have operated the same way for hundreds, in some cases, thousands of years. That stuff needs to, it needs to keep up it, because there's this growing gap between the things that kind of govern our lives, the rules of the road, and what's possible. And one of the things that technology is getting a lot of criticism for is that technologists people feel like they've kind of run amok. They're doing stuff that we're not, you know, like uh, CRISPR with gene editing. There's some guy in, in China that gene edited a couple of embryos and that they were able to take through and uh, uh, kids resulted that um, what he gene edited out was, uh, it made them immune to HIV. Mm -hmm. You know, wow. and, and we've got the technology now that you can gene edit for, you know, if you want six, four, blonde haired, blue eyed basketball players, you can get that. Mm -hmm. Even if you're four and a half feet tall and Aboriginal, you can, <laughs> you can uh, make that happen. So we've got to get, we got to get on that. Uh, we got to catch up. Yeah. yeah. Otherwise the people inventing the technology actually are the ones, and this is already happening a lot who are, you know, calling the shots and kind of guiding us along in our, uh, on our, in our evolution, which by and large, I don't think is a, a bad thing because I, I know a lot of these people and these are really good, very smart people, but this needs to benefit everybody. And one of the things that I do worry a lot about is this growing divide between the haves and have nots and technology right. certainly widens the divide. And what I am very focused on is the opportunity for technology to eliminate the divide. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, things, things like uh, free and abundant energy solve the world's water problem, you know, and, and the leading cause of death in the world, even today is waterborne disease. I mean, far too many people in the world spend all of their time, uh, hauling water, bad water from a river just to stay alive. Well, I mean, without water, you've got nothing, right? Right. So they have zero opportunity to take advantage of this coming, uh, connectivity to the internet and joining this kind of human network where they can take advantage of all of this this knowledge and connection with people around the world to raise funds, do microfunding, to start a business, 
and join the 21st century, right? So anyway. No, that, you know, to kind of summarize that, I heard a, and it's just a simple play on math, but it's just been stuck in my head since I heard it. You, you've talked a lot about the, the advancements in the 1980s, right? So 1980 is the same distance from 1939 as 2021. And when I heard, like that, just that really impacted me. Like you think about what the world was like in 1939, and that's as close to 1980 as we are now. It really put this in perspective, in a Texas perspective. You know, a hundred years ago, there were Comanches right. killing people in Texas. A hundred years. You ago. mentioned Buffalo Gap. There was plenty of them out yeah, there. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So a hundred years ago, we had quote wild Indians, Native Americans, and huge amount of tension between you know the settlers that were encroaching and it had been happening for a long time but that was a hundred years ago that's mind-blowing yeah. to think about it so i want to go back to tti for a minute and I, and I love the way you describe the yin and the yang and and sort of the technology being the creator and the destroyer i think is how you described it in our pre-call and you've written a lot about this too, but if you think about the position that TTI plays and the importance of protecting, enhancing, growing the supply chain and everything that we've learned about how messed up that can get due to a worldwide pandemic or freeze-mageddon up here in, in Fort Worth, talk to us about your thoughts of, of where TTI and its subsidiary companies are today and, and where it's headed. Yeah, so we play a really important role in the supply chain, and this will resonate with you. We are, in essence, the insurance policy in the supply chain. Right. So, and by that, uh, what I mean is we're a, a distributor of electronic components. Electronic components make all of this work. And the thing about electronic components is there's an infinite variety of them. They have different lead times. They come from lots of different sources. And they represent inventory on an OEM's balance sheet. And one of the things coming out of the bubble burst in 2000 was inventory became a four-letter word. <laughs> Nobody wants inventory. It's viewed as a, not a good use of resource and everybody's focused on return on capital employed. And so one of the things that's been attacked is inventory. Nobody wants the inventory. So what that has meant is... Uh, this, and there's a lot in the press now about uh, JIT, and I was around for when that started to get hold, and and it it had a lot to put a lot of pressure on how the supply chain was configured. So, I mean, so think about this: if what you are attempting to do, if the metric you're driving for is the lowest cost with the shortest lead time, what lends itself best to that is whatever you need is that's concentrated in one area. So it's in one factory. And then the feeders to that, the inputs to that could be close to that factory. You know, that's the most efficient. You can get scale, so you can drive the cost down. And you've got a big flow of work. Everybody who needs that particular whatever it is, is it's coming from that one place, right? But that creates a huge amount of risk because you scrub that one place off the face of the earth, you're done. Right. And, and these are complex systems now that have, you know, bills of material that are... I mean, thousands, maybe tens of thousands of parts. And each one of those parts has its own bill of material, you know, whether it's, it's raw materials, copper and, you know, plastics, which is what the uh, cold weather here knocked out. Mm -hmm. And then, so it, to 
look at it even more deeply, what's happened because of this, this propensity to concentrate things, it concentrates where people concentrate. And here's the weird thing about where population concentrates. We have a knack for picking places with the shittiest weather <laughs> it, that's just getting shittier. Yeah. Right. So you've, so every year we've got more and more hurricanes that are disruptive, flooding, earthquakes, fires, freezes now. And so I, I saw a stat, I don't know who put this together in 2019, weather related events caused $150 billion in economic damage. Haven't seen the data for 2020. And by the way, in 2019, all the risk forecasters, nobody talked about a pandemic. Mm -hmm. Wasn't on anybody's radar. So we, let's add that into it, right? And where you have these population centers and a pandemic comes through. We've got a problem in the supply chain right now in semiconductors that's in the process of shutting GM down once more right. because they're counting on stuff that comes out of Malaysia. And Malaysia's been on perpetual lockdown now for a while because of this flare-up in uh, in COVID. So the, there was a, I don't remember earlier in the year, a tanker got stuck in the Suez Canal. Right. Yep. And that had a ripple effect through the supply chain. So role that we play is to have inventory so that we've got this buffer when something happens. But frankly, it, challenges, of course, and, and you guys will appreciate this, you're in the insurance business. Mm -hmm. uh, people don't like to pay for insurance. And if they don't think they need it, they'll, I mean, how many people drive around without insurance? Right. Our industry has, in essence, been driving around in a souped-up car, not only without insurance, without a damn seatbelt on. And so what's happened, actually, is that for a lot of us in the industry, not a surprise at all. That this has been coming, and we've had a little, we've had some fender benders. So we absolutely should have understood the, the vulnerability. So the, the big question, of this, of course, that comes out of all this is, what changes? And I, I think that's your question. And it isn't easy because this was all, it, this takes time to reconfigure, you know, a semiconductor fab, uh, two and a half, three years, $10 billion. Mm -hmm. And it's reliant on equipment from companies like uh, ASML that make these really amazing tools that you need to build semiconductors with. And those tools themselves need semiconductors. So they can, it's like a kind of a, really nasty catch 22. Mm -hmm. So it one, it takes time. Two, it takes a change in the customer base's thinking. The customer base is going to, uh, I've lived in a world where you've gotten more for less quarter on quarter forever. That's the, think about the TV that you can buy today right. versus what you could have bought five years ago. How much more TV do you get for less than you would have paid five years ago? That's the consumer uh, expectation of electronics. It's business expectation of electronics. And, uh, and that's gotten us where we are today. Mm -hmm. The economics of this as a, a manufacturer, supplier are uh, severely challenged. So we have to reconfigure things. Tough to do because there's, even though we have the technology to make things transparent so you can have information flowing up and down and, and very accurately and precisely calculate your risk and make better decisions. There's uh, no incentive to share that information. You know, this whole notion of a virtual and transparent supply chain, 
uh, supply chain information is proprietary. Mm-hmm. You know, my chances of convincing my suppliers to tell me exactly what they're using and from whom and to give me the contact information and everything else that I'd want to have to really you know, be able to manage my own risk or at least understand it, quite small. Right. To go deeper and get those folks is you know, the, the average uh, uh, aerospace and defense company has 200 and some, 250 or 60 prime suppliers, you know, first level supply chain folks. And another couple hundred thousand, or another couple thousand, I'm sorry, uh, beneath that. So, and then beneath that is, you know, it right, just keeps keeps growing. How, it's a really extremely difficult challenge that we have the technology to solve. But what we've got to deal with is a misalignment of incentives, mm-hmm. which I say, I mean, anytime you have something that seems intractable, what you've first got to look at is the incentives. And is everybody that's involved incentivize in a way that they're all going to pull in the same direction or are they going to pull in different directions and this supply chain is pulling itself apart right and you know and now we're all living with it when you have to wait six months to get a new refrigerator or you can't buy a new car or whatever i mean it's unbelievable and so from from tti's perspective and then just yours personally two questions one if you follow the line of thought around how much less expensive a TV is today than it was six months ago, three years ago, five, certainly five years ago. And you think about the minute cost of your average component part. I mean, it can't get a whole lot less expensive than that. So is there pressure to drive that component cost down or because of what we're seeing now in the issues with supply chain all over the world and you start entering new technologies. You mentioned all the technologies in a simple pallet shipping, or now you interject blockchain. Can you get your component cost actually to go up and reverse that trend? Right now it has. Right now people are, right now it's, do you want the best price or do you want parts? You can have, you cannot have both. Right. But but this, so we, the industry's grown quite a bit. Some of it's demand and some of it's just a, price increase. And so you multiply the two together and you get kind of an outsized year on your growth. I mean, my industry is probably going to grow in the high teens, maybe low twenties, which is phenomenal mm-hmm. for something this size. But yeah, it, I personally believe that when the dust settles, we're not going to retreat back to the price points post pandemic mm-hmm. or pre pandemic. Rather, we're going to settle on something that's more sustainable that's uh, economically uh, enough of incentive for companies to go back to reinvesting in incremental capacity because that's one of the problems that's happened is, you know, if you're not happy with the margin you're making on whatever it is that you make, why would you spend more money to make more of that, mm-hmm. right? So th- th- that factors into it as well. It's it's uh, complicated and it's been, I think, a real wake up call. And it's not just this, it's raw materials in our pharmaceuticals, the vast majority of them come out of China. So right. you know, all we were talking about in 18 and 19 was the trade war between uh, China and the US. You know, that fell out of the headlines when COVID arrived, right? Still like massive problem, not just in my industry, right. but in all industries. And this, and it's a symptom of this kind of trend. It's another favorite subject of mine or something I think a lot about, which is a uh, 
away from globalism to nationalism and isolationism, which personally I, I, you know, it's wrong direction. Mm -hmm. It's um, not helpful, but and that ties back to this fact that we've got a, a, a government instead of incentives that's I think you know, extremely outdated. I mean, it's somebody I heard somebody talk about this recently. It really struck me was we've got our folks in government and a lot of great people, but you know they're operating on a four year timeline and they need to be working on problems that have like a 40, a 40 year right. uh, event horizon. And hey, guess what? That can just get kicked down the road yeah. because again, a misalignment of, of incentives. So it, uh, I realize I'm, I'm wandering a little bit, but uh, you got my brain spinning off into no, that a lot of different goal. things. I mean, I, there's, there's, <laughs> you are uh, chock full of rabbit holes. I mean, there's, we could make 20 more riddled podcasts. With, <laughs> riddled, riddled with rabbit holes. No, it, it, it's fascinating. <laughs> but, you know, I, I guess just going back macro for a second and TTI being a global company, I mean, there, there's certainly a lot of people and a lot of philosophies around. If you look at the runtime of any great, nation in history there's a beginning and an end and because we've become so global in our approach you know are we losing that that edge as the if it from a united states perspective as a as a global power and you know does that keep you up at night at all or to your point you know the engine's running we just got to double down and continue to strengthen those relationships figure it out you know at some point in time uh, you mentioned flying cars. I mean, we've got private space travel now, like the whole new world is about to open up, right? So from your perspective, again, you can tell you're so well-read, well-traveled, uh, experienced in business. I mean, what are your thoughts on the U.S.'s role going forward? This is a very unique place. I mean, we are all so fortunate to be born here, right? It's It, it really is a unique place. And I'm actually not is worried about the future of the U.S. I am worried about the future of the world, mm -hmm. and the you know the U.S. is a citizen, a citizen of the world, and so quite what it means is if other countries are failing, then it's going to be tough for us to succeed. This notion that we can go it alone, I mean that's that's been over for I don't know decades. Totally agree. Right? Yeah. yeah. So if we can set aside our differences and focus on our commonalities, their common purpose, that the future is amazing. So it's not just, this isn't we win, everybody else loses. The secret to us winning is everybody else winning as well. And it's then we create this, you know, rising tide, yeah. right? So it, uh, and then we can collectively, because it's what it's going to take, work on the rising tide that's being created by ice melt in Greenland and Antarctica, you know, where, I mean, I just, that, that UN climate report talks about, there's a, there's enough water trapped in the, in this 10,000 foot thick ice sheet in Greenland that which is melting very quickly. Right. If it disappears, sea levels rise as much as 24 feet. That happens. I'm scuba diving on Miami. Right. And, um, man, that you, so, we, but you look is, what a, a a twelve foot surge does with a you know hurricane, any uh, of them, right? right? I mean, right? Yeah, that's that's a scary no, thought. For we sure. need to we need to quit thinking in terms of us versus them, and you know how are we going to preserve the advantage that the U.S. has, and start thinking about 
it's not us versus them. It's just us, a global us working on this stuff so that, you know, our kids, our grandkids, future generations, that, that we don't have to climb on a spaceship with Elon and move to Mars, <laughs> right? right? It, uh, that, I can't imagine anything worse quite. Nope, no offense, Elon, but not something on my to-do list. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Now, you know, I might not mind going out there and looking around, but I don't want to permanently relocate, right? Well, you mentioned several times uh, the role of of Mike Morton in, in working with John Archer, and I just want to pause and say we're so appreciative of our growing relationship with them and getting to know you. The the other words that that they threw out because I don't want to miss that were technologist, thought provoker, ethical, and pragmatic. And I just think spending this time with you today, they couldn't have nailed that any better. Well, if you had asked for four out of each of them, one of them would have said pain in the ass <laughs> and the other would have said obnoxious. <laughs> Maybe I didn't write those down. So in thinking through that that theme and everything that you've you've shared with us and you know certainly the the role Paul Andrews played not only at TTI but in your life, uh, we end podcasts by asking a simple question, which is there's the saying out there that it's not what you know, it's who you know. But we flip it around and say, it's not what you know, it's who knows you. And thinking about this medium of this podcast and capturing your story, which I think we've done very well today, what do you want people to know about you? So I, I've listened to your bunch of your podcasts Thank and you. you've had some really amazing people sitting in this chair. And I've been particularly interested in their answers to that question. And so it's, uh, my answer to that question is, I think I, I would like people to know, and, and they already know this, I want to just reinforce it, is that I am a work in process. Um, I know that I can be grouchy, grumpy, sarcastic, and at times probably judgmental. And uh, so and despite all of that, my life is full of people who look past that and appreciate me and support me. And I, I, it's just, it's, I don't actually know exactly why I deserve that, but I don't want to think about it too hard. I don't want to jinx it. Right. Um, it, you know, it's, it's pretty awesome. So I'm working on it and I hope to live well past a hundred to give myself time to, uh, I'm never going to be perfect. I just going to forewarn my wife of that. So she doesn't <laughs> develop an unrealistic expectation. Right. But, you know, I, I do have this, I've got, um, not to go down on the rubber hole, but I, so I talk about my operating manual mm -hmm. and I have a kind of a, a, a moral compass too. And it's, it, and I'm not religious at all, I, not even close, but it's, I call it the, what would Jesus do? Mm -hmm. And it's the old, you know, this old golden rule, uh, do unto others as they would do unto you. Right which is a lot different than doing to others as they've done unto you. Mm -hmm. And that's a really easy thing to get into. And I literally, I start every day thinking about the golden rule. And it's in most days when I'm not traveling, I take my dogs for a walk and I get to apply it because you know, this true story, I, I think I literally think about this every day. We're not out the door two minutes, then one of them stops and drops a deuce, right? And <laughs> every um, time, every time. And so I always think, you know, if Jesus was a dog walker, what would he do? 
right now? Would he look around and just, hey, is, is anybody looking? <laughs> Hell, no, hey, nobody's around, nobody's looking. I'm not picking this up. I'm just gonna, right. I'm just gonna move on. No, Jesus would would pick it up, right? Right. And um, and I pick it up. And it's, you know, it's the old, you know, uh, what you do in private should match what you do in public. And that's, I think I, I want people to understand that about me because maybe it'll, some of the weirder, more annoying things about me then might make a little bit more sense in a, as a strange as that is. <laughs> no, I, you know, that I love that. And that's a great answer. It reminds me a lot of, uh, of a saying my, my grandfather had, and he, you nailed it when you said, you know, early on in your career, one of your mentors talked about, you know, you got to learn how to sell, sell because everything involves selling something. But when you're in that mode, right, um, you know, salespeople are known for being full of shit too, right? And so, you know, my grandfather, knowing my career path and, and seeing my strengths early on in that field, said, just remember something. If you always tell the truth, you never have to remember what you say. And I think that goes along with that that same way that, you know, Jesus could have turned around and not picked up the the deuce, but you know, he, he chose to. And then that's your moral compass. And we appreciate that. So thank you for joining us today. This has been wonderful. We'd love to have you back. And and be careful what you uh, wish for. <laughs> no, we, we we will do that for sure. Yeah. So I really appreciate it. I've enjoyed it. I love your line of questioning, super engaging. And uh, this is, uh, and as you can tell, I'm no shortage. I'm not never at a loss of words. I got loads of stuff to talk about. Well, so. That's exactly why we're going to bring you back. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of The Climb. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing. And if you know someone who you would think would enjoy the podcast, feel free to share this with them. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode.